a lot of people, especially the younger folks, um, they start to treat the stock market and the option market like a giant casino, right? Mm. And when I look at the statistics um, this morning that options trading is at an all-time high, it was a bit worrying because I think a lot of people go into trading options without truly understanding what's the potential amount of money you could lose. You're listening to the Building Financial Fitness Podcast, the show where personal finance is about the person, not just the numbers. Here on BFF, we talk about how to make money your best friend so that you can have the freedom to make the most out of life. We go through the honest discussions about money so that you don't need to make the same mistakes. We demystify jargon so that no one can smoke you with complicated acronyms. After all, money's greatest value is to give us control over our time, which is truly our greatest asset. I'm your host, Junus Yu. Hi guys, and welcome back to the Building Financial Fitness Podcast. So today we are going to be talking about the art of steady compounding and how to analyze companies for beginners. We have back with us again, Thomas Chua from Steady Compounding. Yeah, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you as well. And I want to start off first with quoting Morgan Hauser, who is the author behind The Psychology of Money. And he says that the hardest financial skill is getting the goalposts to stop moving, but it's one of the most important. From your perspective, how does an investor prefer the steady compounding approach versus quick wins? Because if you look at the Reddit universe, if you look at the GameStop event, if you look at how you know, certain certain people invest, you know, they're kind of going in for the quick wins. And from you, you know, the last time when you were on the show, you actually talked about taking a long-term approach, using time to your advantage, and you go for that that slow but steady kind of approach. Yeah, so like um, just this morning when I was looking through, um, you know, a few research um Options trading, short-term options trading that lasts, you know, just a few days mm. is at an all-time high. Like, um, there has never been such a high level before. And But we see all the YouTube ads. Yeah. So options trading. A lot of the YouTube ads would capture the FOMO and greed of people, right? Mm-hmm. Because, like, um, you know, emotions sell um, very well. But when it comes to investing, it is very important to understand, like, um, both the stock market and options, they are tools, right? And we could either use them to grow our wealth by, you know, analyzing them properly and doing it the right way, or we could treat it like a casino. Mm. And I think since the start of 2020, we start to see a lot of people, especially the younger folks, um, they start to treat the stock market and the option market like a giant casino, right? Mm. With all the GameStop, AMC, so on and so forth. And when I look at the statistics um, this morning, that options trading is at an all-time high, even higher than 2020 and 2021 levels. It, it was a bit worrying because I think a lot of people go into trading options without truly understanding what's the consequences what is with the potential amount of money you could lose and mm. options is dangerous that way it's not yes. like stock whereby the amount you could lose is 100 percent. yes that, that's all that's all that you're losing yeah mm. like options could go like two three hundred four hundred percent of what you have and, and that is the very dangerous part and when it comes to investing or the whole reason why i call my blog steady compounding is because I don't like the idea of overnight reaches. I always feel that things that grow very fast are very fragile, you know, and they are likely to break down without a very strong foundation. Mm. And and so when it comes to getting wealthy quickly, a lot of times when we look at people who are able to achieve that, even either through crypto or either through options, we must think at how repeatable their process is, right? 
like if we look at the universe of 100 outcomes, are they going to repeat this? Maybe a good 50% chance, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and the likelihood of them being able to do so is probably no, right? And then we want to think of, you know, if we were to adopt these strategies today, are they sound strategies, right? And when I think of that, um, you know, it's a, it's a complete no for me. And so mm. when I invest... I always want to be grounded in terms of the financial analysis of a company because ultimately, I look at myself as a business owner, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to own this cash flow, right? This company, I'm making money. If the stock price drops too low, the company can either buy back their shares or they can do something to unlock value, right? That's where the assessment of not just the financials but also whether the management is shareholder-friendly comes in. So in that way, there's a very big difference between trying to get rich very quickly, which often times involves gambling then you know buying the lottery ticket or just going MBS you know you get a rough same odds um, as opposed to doing this yeah but um, when it comes to getting rich quickly um, I, I would caution most investors to really understand especially in the option market what they are getting into always think in terms of what is the total amount of money I can lose from this position so as to mm. at least safeguard yourself mm. for the people who are buying options what do you think the knowledge of what's the max loss that they can take? Do you think they know that? I think this is a challenge, especially with the male population. Um, when they start to make a bit of money, they mm. think, you know, I'm invincible. I'm very smart. It's interesting. Why do you mention the male population? Because I, I saw <laughs> a lot of my friends who are pretty smart. Um, mm. They lose a lot of money. Like mm. I've seen people who went from like maybe 8 million net worth to 3 million, um, mm. you know, um, not because they are stupid or not because they are wrong in analyzing the companies but because when they use options they fail to account for certain scenarios you know like um, you could think that a company is undervalued but an option has an expiry date and Mm. if the market don't agree with you in time for the option to you know within the expiry date then you are just going to have to pay a very very huge premium Mm. and I mean I don't see girls losing that much money right Mm. but I see a lot of guys losing a lot of money largely because they are super aggressive and I'm I I think like um, it it might be a natural tendency for guys to be this aggressive when I look at the you know Wall Street bets on Reddit a lot of them are getting into debt as well right Trading on margin. Trading on margin, not quite sure what they're getting into. Um, and, and I think like um, the most um, poor, I mean, I, I mean, I have a lot of sympathies for this person. Like his portfolio, he thought like he wouldn't get margin caught, but he didn't realize that uh, micro caps, um, that means very, very small companies, mm. they don't count towards the margin requirements. And, and so he totally got the margin calculation out of whack and he got margin caught. And it, and it was a surprise to him. And mm. when, when that happened, you just have to realize a large amount of loss to your portfolio. Yeah, So I, I think many people know maybe the basics, but they don't really know the advanced level, the entire possible outcome that could happen. And when it hits them out of the, out of the blue, then I think that's where a lot of them take a lot of losses. Mm, got it. I mean, you raised that point of, you know, the, what's going on on Wall Street bets. I think there is some level of analysis, but a lot of it is also more of like, hey, you know, hey, bro, if you're in, I'm yeah. in. Come on, let's like bring mm. this to the moon, that kind of thing. And there's a lot of like training that kind of based on, I have a good feeling about this or like, I like Elon Musk. 
Right. That's just by Tesla, like, and there are so many people that's like supporting it. So, so my point is, this, not everybody comes from a fundamental analysis background. Not everybody is gonna is gonna pull out the annual reports of a company, put it into some spreadsheet, you know, build the five year, five to ten year forecast, test different assumptions, or even be on analyst calls and like ask them like, what do you think is the, the revenue scenario and what is the downside? What's the biggest risk that they're assuming? Not many people are doing that. There's some people who do, but not many people do that. So, what are your Top three tips for people who want to study companies but do not know how to start. I, I think um, we always must be able to not just read the financial statements, but we must get insights from um, you know how a company is doing when we are reading the financials. Like if the margins are rising, we got to be able to explain why tie back to what the management is trying to do. But if there's one key takeaway that could address quite a few things is um, we have to think about what are the reasons or why do this company actually deserve to be bigger um, today, mm. 10 years later, mm. right? Because ultimately, when we are looking at stock prices increase, right, the stock price may fluctuate from day to day, right? Um, but eventually, it will be tracking the fundamental performance of a business. Mm. And when we are looking at how share prices increase in the long run, a lot of it is going to be tied to how well the company is going to do in the future, right? Um, whether there's going to be an economic mode strong enough Enough, competitive advantage strong enough mm. to prevent competition from eating into its margins mm. or you know why is it able to grab a bigger market share um, and continue growing its revenue for the next 10 years right mm-hmm. and so when we think of this question like why do they deserve to be bigger 10 years from today then it gives us very good sensing at least qualitatively as to whether this company will be a good investment choice or not mm then I would say the second thing that investors must do is that they must learn how to do valuations, like just basic valuations. You don't have to know um, very DCF. complicated. Don't, yeah, DCF, I think it's a good, uh, good to know because like um, ultimately that's the way we think about valuations from a first principle, like what contributes to value. But um, investors should at least have a thought about what the future revenue would be, how the f- profitability would be, um, at least like roughly what kind of multiple it could command. You know, it could be on a PE basis or it could be on a EV over free cash flow basis, mm. whichever you pick. Um, and then you have a rough sense of whether these companies is planning to reduce shares or continue diluting shareholders. And then mm-hmm. you can have a rough estimations of like what the valuation is today. So you make sure you don't don't overpay, right? And so with this tool, you can sort of roughly settle the qualitative aspect and then also quantitatively what this company valuation is. So you make sure you don't overpay, right? Because when we look at even a very strong company like Microsoft, if we purchase them during 2000, for example, mm. it would have taken you about 14 years to break even, right? right? And not many investors can hold go that. through that 14 years without doing anything, right. right? And to be honest, if you were to hold Microsoft from year 2000 until today, you would have gotten a 15% Kager, which mm. is beating, market beating, excellent results. Mm. But not many people will be able to, to do that, right? Yeah. And that's where I think valuation comes in very handy. So you make sure you don't go through that period of suffering, whereby, you know, 14 years of not going anywhere. Or mm. rather, you're losing money throughout the 14 years. Mm. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, given that we're talking about multiples, right? Like you're looking at PE or like EV multiples. If you look at what you perceive to be the winners, they are 
already trading at premium. Yeah. So how do you account for that? I, I think like um let let's say if today I want to look at Adobe, they are usually traded at maybe thirty five times, or mm. Hermes is always at forty over times. Mm. When I'm project doing my projection for the smaller companies, let's say I'm trying to do a Monday.com, one of the software company, and I, because they have a very similar gross profit margin profile with Adobe, like both of them are hyper profitable at mm. around ninety percent gross profit margin. Um, if I were to project Monday.com, I will not assign uh, you know such a lofty multiple like what Adobe is commanding. Generally, mm. when it comes to valuation, I like to be a little bit more conservative. So I might assign a twenty to twenty five times rather than uh, a thirty to thirty five, mm. just like Adobe. Mm. Yeah. So um, when it comes to valuation, it's always um, better to err on the conservative side. There's this quote by Warren Buffett that I really like. Like you don't need to know the weight of an obese person to know that they're obese. Mm. Right? You just by looking at them, you know mm. they're obese. So I think same thing when it comes to valuation. You don't be too aggressive uh, with your assumptions. And if they are undervalued, um, you know, and you're conservative, usually it's pretty obvious to you whether they are a decent opportunity mm. at this time or not. How often do you look at price the book? Um, I it has been a really long time. So mm. and and there's a good reason for it because when we are looking at price to book valuation, right, it is generally used for asset heavy companies, right. And when we look at the companies of today, there was another study done whereby at the year twenty fifteen. Companies are spending more on intangibles. That means like uh, your branding or your R and D, etc., yep. mm-hmm. as opposed to like your buildings or your machineries. Yes, and that's where the key value driver is. And mm. and so when your you know a lot of money is spent on these intangibles and it's not recorded, right? Marketing, for example, brand building is all expense off. Yes, you're not able to accurately measure the earnings power of these companies based on book value anymore because yep. fundamentally book value is just trying to see um, the asset value of these companies. Mm. So while this still will be relevant for a few sectors, maybe the developers and the banking sector, Mm -hmm. but for a lot of other companies, um, these metrics are no longer reliable for Mm. a lot of these other companies. Got it. So I guess for the purposes of, you know, this session, maybe let's do a case study, right? So let's say we are looking to analyze NVIDIA. Mm. NVIDIA has, you know, definitely rallied a lot, you know, Mm. just given based on the whole AI hype and, you know, there are few players in this market. So what would, you know, what would be the first few pools of data that you gather when you want to look at, when you want to look at a company? Um, I I think I would do a reverse valuation for this company, meaning like, uh, you know, for me, to get at least a 15% Kager on this investment, you know, what are the assumptions that need to be? So I think NVIDIA today is traded at maybe 80, I can't remember, maybe 70 over times PE or 80 over times PE. Mm-hmm. Right. Just pull it out. Yeah, I would I would project the share price today, mm. um, make it 15% Kager over the next five years. Mm. And then I would give it a PE of maybe 30 times at most because I don't want to be too aggressive. Right. And then that's where I will reverse the number to take a look at what is the revenue figure um, mm. that's required to achieve this 15% Kager for myself. So the, the PE ratio for trolling 12 months is 108. Yeah, it's, it's extremely high. And this mm. is not an unprofitable company. Yes. Their margins are not compressed. Um, when I took a look at their profitability, in fact, it is at an all-time high. Yes. Right? And if I were to assume that 
they have no competition, you know, they continue to command, I think, 30% operating margins um, throughout the next five years. Mm -hmm. I think they need to grow at over 50% um, over the next few years to achieve this kind of valuation. And mm. when I ask myself, is this possible? Yes, it is possible, but the likelihood is of a, such a huge company continue growing at such a fast pace yep. is perhaps low. And I don't have the insight as to answering the question whether Google or Amazon, would they try to, you know, or AMD, could they catch up with NVIDIA, right? Because uh, of like technical capabilities in your R&D, like, you know, who's going who's gonna to emerge, right? You know, right. Especially with like chip makers, like how do you know who's going to be able to win the market? Yeah, I think right now the narrative is that what NVIDIA have, it's very difficult for competition to enroach into. Like a lot of people are saying the competitive advantage is strong. But mm. that's the case every time um, a company's stock price increase a lot. Mm -hmm. The narrative will follow the stock price. People yes. will start saying, the, you know, Jensen Huang is brilliant. The company is invincible. Mm. You know, other companies will need 10 years to catch up with them. Yes, And that has always been you know, how the stock market is, right? When 2021 happened, people were saying this time is different. Says company, even though loss making, they are recurring, right? And Cloudflare went up to 100 times price to sales, right? Mm. And and it just plummeted a lot. Or even our homegrown company, C Limited, right? Shopee. Yes. Um, also, people are saying like e-commerce, all this very sticky, change forever. The growth rate is going to, they're going to take over Indonesia, so on and so forth. Um, but things always come back to earth. Um, and for NVIDIA, um, I mean, after doing the reverse projection and, you know, it requires a very high amount of growth rate and, you know, for it to maintain that level of profitability, it hasn't always been able to do so, right? And investors are quick to forget the last time this happened was during the crypto boom, mm. right? And management likewise was, the whole, the whole, you know, and a whole lot of analysts were projecting like uh, NVIDIA to do well. Yeah. And then within six months, boom, everybody changed their mind. And yeah. NVIDIA share price just went down. The margin strength, there was a lot of inventory to clear. Um, so, I mean, I, I would be cautious. I, I think there's a chance they could do it. They are a great company, great management. But um, when all the expectations are baked in, then I think that's where I would want to be a lot more cautious as an investor. Yeah, and I'll also like to add, because like usually when you know somebody starts to look at the stock universe, they would typically uh, you know tend to look at, for example, like analyst reports, right? You can right. get it from the various like banks. And then often they would take a very optimistic approach and everybody kind of yeah. boys up the sector, right? Yeah. And it, sometimes it can get very, very frothy where they have, you know, if you, if you are looking at their forward projections, it looks extremely optimistic, but they're kind of basing it off each other's baseline. So if everybody is like kind of bringing it up in general, it just increases the frothiness of the sector. But how does one take a sort of like a sensible approach? I, I think when everybody is saying that the company is, you know, is great and all that, it's usually a little bit too late. Um, mm. And I, I think... And because it's priced in already. It's priced in. And I think the the reverse could be a little bit more helpful. I mean, so let's take um, Netflix and Meta, for example. Mm. Both these companies, like Meta, I think, returned, I think, about over 300% in the past 12 months. And we look back at Meta at the bottom, like maybe $88. The narrative was that 
um, you know, they were getting disrupted. TikTok is going to come in and get them. Nobody's using Facebook. Mm. But that's when I think as investors, you can go in and take a look at their financials because they will report all the operating metrics. Yeah. How many active users are on Facebook, mm. on Instagram, WhatsApp. Um, the numbers are not falling. In fact, mm. the numbers are still rising by 2 to 3% every single year. Mm. And when we look at the average revenue per user, right, they are holding up as well. They're yeah. actually not falling. Mm. And when the when they, they have a revenue slowdown, um, that's where I want to know whether this is, you know, um, a problem of meta or like is it a, a blip, broad... Like a blip. Like a blip mm. or is this a broad industry problem? Yeah. And when I compare meta's um, advertising revenue to what Google is making, what Snap is making um, and what the other social media companies, what they're making... Mm. Every single company had a slowdown, including YouTube, which is pretty nascent. The only one that did not slow down um, is Amazon's advertisement, mm. right? Because they were coming off an even smaller base. Mm. And so when I when I look at that, LinkedIn, everybody was slowing down. I, I, I sort of knew like um, this wasn't a meta problem, right? And meta numbers are actually holding up pretty decently throughout this economic recession scare right and when I look at this then you know it sort of disproved the narrative that nobody is using Facebook that you know Meta is getting disrupted in fact they are still one of the best companies at monetizing um, ad revenue right I think same things goes for Netflix mm. right because when Netflix had a COVID boom um, during the COVID period a lot of people sign up for Netflix account yep. and I think it's normal to sort of expect that the company will lose a bit of users um, when, you know, the COVID measures are relaxed. Mm. And when, the you know, when they had their first um, drop in users for the first time, everybody freaked out, right? Mm. But same thing, when, when I went to look at the amount of churn versus that of other gaming companies, for example, you could look at all the online gaming companies, they all had a slowdown, Tencent um, to our Garena, right, mm. again, Stay Limited, they all yeah. had a small small decline, right, and, and that is normal. And, you know, just within one year, likewise, Netflix, I think in more than 200% or something throughout these 12 months, and the number of users start to increase again, right? It's, it's at a, one of the highest point ever. And they are able to monetize very well, um, not just from its users, but it's also introducing the ad-supported tier. And I think that's another source of revenue. So I think it's um, very important for investors when we are looking at a lot of these companies' drawdown, we want to understand like what you like what you said just now. Is it a short-term bleed? Mm. Or is it you know a broad industry thing that's very temporary in nature? Then I think that's where a lot of good opportunities can be found. Mm. You know, I realize a lot of the names that you mentioned, these are often more well-covered stocks where they right. are there's a lot more um, disclosure on not just financial metrics but also operating metrics but how often do you look at you know like say the smaller cap stocks where they are not as understood they are not as covered by analysts and in terms of what they actually report is not that much as well yeah so I, I think that's a great question because whenever I'm asked this question I, I always remind like my readers that when investing we are we are rewarded or we are paid when we are purchasing companies that's worth less today than in the future. Mm. And that could come in all shapes and sizes, right? It doesn't need to be a small cap. It could be a big cap. 
when we are looking at all these big caps, right, um, we look at their 52-week high and low. The difference is usually 70 to 80%. Mm. So when it comes to the stock market, it is highly inefficient, even when it comes to these very highly covered stocks. I'm a bit hesitant to look at micro caps, um, companies that are exceptionally small, because mm. when it comes to looking at these companies, the amount of disclosure is very little. Right, mm. And a lot of times for my friends who do well as microcap investors, they do what I call um, scatterbutt, meaning they will check every day you know, how many mm. followers this company Instagram page is putting on. Let's say it's, mm. a, it's a brand D2C company. Right. Or they will go and call the management and talk to management, try and get you know, additional, try and get an edge over other people. Because when the disclosures are this little, it's very difficult to find out how the company is actually doing. Yes. And the biggest thing that holds me back from investing in microcap is um, when a company is small, the range of outcome is a lot wider. Hmm. Right, the rewards is going to be higher if you are right because but, you're starting off a small base. Right, but you know it could go right, but if it could go left, you know, hmm. or it could go wrong, then I think that's where uh, you know you you would lose uh, your capital. So I think when investing in microcap, I don't really look at this. But um, for my friends who invest in microcap, I always tell them um, that when you are investing in these companies, make sure you position size. Um, correctly, meaning mm. you don't want to be too, you don't don't want to be too aggressive when investing and make this like maybe a 30-40% position. Mm. You want to treat this like VC investing, you know, right. where you invest in multiple of them where, and, and then you the have one. The winner is going to cover the like long tail, right? The one winner is going to cover the rest of it. Exactly. The winner is going to take care of all the losers mm. and, and this is how, I mean, if I were to invest in microcap, how I would approach it. Mm. Yeah. But otherwise, the results could be disastrous. And what is your own portfolio allocation? Like. So um, I'm predominantly in the stock market, right? Mm. Because um, when I look at asset allocation, I think it's very important to take into account which phase of life are you at, mm. right? If I'm near my retirement age, for example, and that's where I need cash flow, then I would probably allocate some to more um, that would generate fixed income for me. But as of now, I'm still very much focused on compounding uh, my wealth at above market returns, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so most of my assets are in stocks. And when it comes to diversification, there's this study published um, and I think it was first, when I first read it, it was from Joel Greenblatt's book, which is mm. a exceptional fund manager. Yes. I think he returned 50% over a decade or something. So mm. like really exceptional performance. And he showed this um, study whereby we are able to eliminate most of the overall stock market risk when we have about 10 to 15 positions, mm. right? And so for myself, I keep about 20 stocks in my portfolio. And there's another advice by Peter Lynch, also another exceptional fund manager, 30% over a decade. Um, his advice, uh, you know, is a bit cheeky, but it brings the point home, right? Having the number of stocks in your portfolio is like having children, right? Don't mm. have more than you can manage. Mm. So when it comes to diversification, I think for most investors, 10 to 15, right? If you have a full-time job, is the yeah. sweet spot for most people. Yeah. yeah. This is assuming that they have a fair understanding of all the companies that they put money in and they have like a thesis because I guess, you know, investing in companies like you sort of have, you set your own target price and when you're supposed to hit that. Yeah, 100%. Like, um, this is definitely only for those people who 
are willing to put in the work and you know mm. actually open up the annual report and try to understand what they're investing in. Mm. Otherwise, I think for most people, I would actually advise them to go into indexing, mm. right? Especially if you have a job that's paying well and that's already taking up a lot of your time and you want to mm. spend time on your hobbies, your friends, your family, just do indexing, it'll take care of your investment needs, right? Then you don't have to trouble yourself. And I think for most people, they would actually adopt like a, a mixed approach whereby they will try and, um, you know, maybe index 80%, you know, but the itchy fingers, they want to do active stock picking for the rest of the 20%. Yes. Yeah, I think that's a pretty, at, at least they understand themselves, right? At least they understand themselves and the risk that they're taking because that sort of like covers that itchy fingers. Yeah satisfaction thing right exactly. and, and maybe it's like linked back to the testosterone driven kind of like I think I can pick some winners it eases that I don't know itch for them I mean it's like it's like the, the experiment whereby you ask a, a room full of drivers who here think they are above average drivers, right? Yes, everyone. Confirm more than 50% will raise <laughs> up their hands, right? Mm. And but, but the truth is the average is the average. There's no way, you know, so many people can be above average drivers. Yes. And likewise, there's not that many people who can be above average investors, right? Mm. And so if we have the awareness that, you know, maybe I don't have that much time or I don't have the patience to go through this and I'm honest with myself, then a mixed approach could be helpful, especially for a person who still want to have a bit of fun with stock picking. Mm. That is very, very sound advice. And thank you so much for being on. Really appreciate you coming on. And uh, I, I think what you shared was uh, extremely helpful, but it's also nice to hear from a, you know, a relatively young male that, you know, <laughs> it should not, you know, be too going by gut feel when it comes to stock picking. You know, if you're not going to be putting in the effort to really study stocks, maybe it's just better to put money into a basket like an index fund. Yes, indexing is always like a, a very sound approach to do it. Got it. And for listeners who would like to find out more about what you do, where can they find you? And you can find me on either Instagram or Twitter at Steady Compound. And then mm. my website is steadycompounding.com. Got it. And we'll link it in the show notes. Thank you so much, Thomas, for being on. Thanks for having me. Thank Always you. a pleasure. Many thanks as well to all of you out there for tuning in. This has been a fantastic conversation and we would definitely love to hear what you think about it. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach out to us through the email podcast at melisten.sg or at my Instagram at misfitfi. Aside from that, if you enjoy what you're listening to and want to hear more, please help to spread and grow the show by subscribing on Me Listen or Apple Podcasts or by following on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Finally, the Building Financial Fitness Podcast is an original production from Mediacorp and recorded at Scape Live Studios, The Pod, powered by Audio-Technica and City Music. Episode production is done by Junus Yu with editing and support by Danny Cordy and Gareth Fernandez. Once again, I'm your host and BFF, Junus Yu. Until the next time. <laughs>